0: Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we are once again out in the city of Rome, wandering the streets as part of our Senses series. And today we are doing what? Sight. Sight. And where are we? We are on
1: the terrace of the Caffarelli Palace, which is... Uh, um, a noble palace just behind the um, Capitoline Museum building. So we're up on the Capitoline Hill, which is one of the most important hills, one of the seven hills of Rome. And we're looking out at a spectacular view of
0: the center of the city. Layer upon layer of life, human life, well we have the Pantheon over there being one of the oldest buildings. And what would be something new around this? <laughs> Nothing. The synagogue. I mean, it's new. It's, it's not new for, if you were coming from
1: the United States, it might not be considered new. But for, for Italy, the synagogue is rather new. It was built in the late 1800s. So that's new for here. Anything newer than that? There are newer things than that in Rome, but not, actually, there's something even newer than that. The Victor Emmanuel building, which is right behind us. I the didn't Giant white building yeah. behind us. It, it dates from the early 1900s. So that's definitely the newest building that we can see, although there are newer buildings than that in
0: the city. And you'll have to forgive the wind. We came up here for the ambiance, but now um, we can see an ominous <laughs> black, black cloud, cloud rolling in. So we might be taken out on the way home, but we do this for you. So site is one that we put off for a little while, obviously, because Sight is what Rome is all about.
1: And also because doing a podcast is so, I mean, obviously you can't see anything that we're talking about. So it's not really as conducive as sound was, for
0: example. Here was the first one we did. Let's sit down. We'll get out of the wind. We're also, I should mention, crashing a wedding <laughs> because <laughs> there's a wedding going on right now uh, in this very palace. <laughs> so there you are. Yes, luckily they're screened behind some plexiglass something, so hopefully they can't see us sitting here. (laughs) But one of the things I wanted to talk about when it comes to sight is something that I've thought about a lot since I got here. Tiffany writes for a magazine, an English language magazine that highlights things in Rome, and for the month of November she did Death Month, or that's what we came to call it, which was a big article about all the things that you could do that were death oriented in Rome. Mainly it's because a very
1: lighthearted <laughs> magazine, clearly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, I decided that I was going to try to do as many of the things on the list before the month of November was over and accomplished my goals for the most part, with the exception of the one church that was never, ever, ever open.
1: Which church was that?
0: The one where they pulled the dead bodies out of the Tiber uh, River.
1: Right, right. Santa Maria della Morte e dell'Orazione.
0: Yeah. It still has never been open. I don't know if it's ever open, maybe.
1: I've been in there once, but I don't remember why. I think it was a special opening, so we'll have to we'll have to look into that.
0: Was it full of the bones of d- yes. <laughs> dead criminals? <laughs> there were tons of skulls. Carved into the skulls were the names of the people who had, they had belonged to. Well, one of the things that I find so interesting about Rome, as I was walking the streets and seeing all these buildings, and the buildings are built upon each other, so you'll have something that's ancient, that's... It has a medieval building built onto it, which has something that was built in 1960 built onto the top of that. So it seems like the entire city is built upon all of the lives of the people who came ahead of you. And it is. It we really just is. celebrated this year Rome's 2767th birthday. Hypothetically, that's what they guess it is. And so that's a lot of people that came before. And the offshoot of all that has been that I'm contemplating my own death more. Ouch. Not that I didn't before, because I've always been one of those people that contemplates my own death, like, on a regular basis. (laughs) But but here it seems like it stands out to me because the stories are so here. Everything they built is still here. Not in its glory, but it's still here. It's still visual, yeah. No, I mean, it's hard not
1: to stand in front of a place that's 2,000 years old or older and not think about all the people who walked upon the same stones or looked up and saw it, or the the very people who built it. So it it makes you realize how short your own life is in comparison. When you live in a place where, especially if you come from the west coast of the United States like we do, the oldest thing you're going to find is maybe early 1900s, and that's that's on a good day and so you have this sense that you know your life your hopefully 80 or 90 year plus life is a big chunk out of time because all you can see really is a hundred years back whereas here you can see thousands of years back and you realize that you are a drop in the bucket
0: so have you found that that has changed how you feel about your life at all since you moved here 10 years ago a little bit, not
1: drastically, like I think maybe it is for you. Um, I don't really contemplate death much either lucky, way, lucky, lucky. Yeah, but I will tell you that it has given me a much greater interest in history and appreciation for history, as stimulated love of history
0: that I didn't really have before I came here. Hmm. I think another thing that makes it the presence of these people that are so far gone makes me think about my own death. Is all the stories. It is the history. So let's just say... Let's talk about the painter Raphael, okay? Maybe you should tell the story probably better, but that Raphael was betrothed to a woman, but who was he really in love with? He was in love with his muse, who they called the Fornarina, the baker's
1: daughter, or the baker girl, who was his mistress. And I can't remember her name. I think
0: it was Margarita Luti, something like that. It was close to that, anyway. And... And she lived in the neighborhood that we live in now. Yeah, that's and true. You can see her house. Her house is fairly close to my house. And when uh, Raphael was commissioned to do one of his very famous paintings at the Villa Farnese... Villa Farnesina. Farnesina, sorry. And which painting is that, for people who want to look it up? Do you know? The painting
1: is called The Triumph of Galatea. And it's in a very, very lovely and not very often visited museum in interest. It. I highly recommend when you come to visit because it's gorgeous it's full of frescoes and he painted this one specific fresco there but he was supposed to you know paint also the along with his assistants paint the ceiling but the story goes that he was so in love with this girl that he was and she just lived down the street from where it it was literally
0: a block away a block away
1: I think it's a block away so he was constantly at her place and didn't didn't end up doing a lot of the work and had his assistants do it for
0: him and what I love about that story is that it's so human it's so vivid You can see her home, you can see where that piazza is, and you can see it happening. You can see him saying, I'm going to go to lunch, and disappearing for hours on end, and doing it day after day after day as the people who work for him get more and more resentful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and let's not forget, he probably would have disappeared for hours on end. According to the story, when Raphael died at only 37 years old, he died after a night of intense... Sex with her, with Margarita. They had been having sex for something like 12 hours straight, and he died of exhaustion afterwards. He probably might have had other issues. You know, he might I'm have sure had he has disease or two issues. But yeah, he was he was a party animal, to put it mildly, as were
0: many of these painters. Yeah. So uh, so I can see that he would he would have been gone for hours. For a person like me with a very vivid imagination, I can just picture all of that happening, and I can picture after he dies her visiting his tomb and being so sad and upset about it all and they say that so many people turned out the whole art world showed up all these rich people showed up because he was so beloved he was so charming and everyone was so devastated that he had died and it was this huge procession around the Pantheon and you can picture all that happening and you can feel all the love and the pain and the lust and all these things that go with this story but it is so far gone it happened so long ago every single person that's at all related to this story has been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years and that makes me really think about my own mortality and the way that our world is is that people's stories can be so much alive and also be so far gone
1: well that's a that's like really fascinating way of looking at it i never really have thought about it that way i love those stories too and i never th- sit to think yeah these people have been dead for 400 years or something. I mean, obviously I know that they have been, but to, to put it that way, is
0: it, it kind of gives you like shivers a little bit. Yeah, that's the power of storytelling, I suppose, is that it puts you in their place. So you can feel the pain that they would have gone through. I don't know if you
1: feel like this, but I find that when stories are true, because I mean, obviously if you're talking about storytelling, a lot of them are not true, they're just fiction, But when a story is true like that, it it gives it some kind of a magic that otherwise it would not have had. And then, like you said, when you can actually see physical remnants of that story, whether it's the painting that Raphael painted or the house where Margarita lived, it really is moving. For those who love history, I think that's, I think it's the stories of the ordinary people not that Raphael was ordinary, of course, <laughs> but the, the people, their daily lives. The but she was ordinary. W- she was ordinary, and, you know, obviously their love was ordinary, in a sense, and besides the marathon <laughs> n- lovemaking sessions. I've always loved that, too, and, I, you know, I've been a tour guide for many years, and I used to do tours in the Vatican Museums, and when I used to talk about the story of Michelangelo's life and his relationship with Raphael, who they didn't get along very well, and their relationships also with the popes who were commissioning their work and so on. I found that people were so much more interested in that than they were interested in brushstrokes or technical detail that goes along with art. Now obviously you've got people who are crazy about art who are gonna disagree with that, but for the most part the average person fascinated by the stories of these people, especially when these stories included something that made them real, made them almost ordinary, even though obviously they weren't.
0: Yeah. The fact that, for Michelangelo, most people didn't really want to be around him very much. Nor did he want to be around most people.
1: Yeah, well, he, he had a lot of problems in his life. For someone who was very successful, he had a lot of bad luck. So he was very frustrated. Much of his life, he was frustrated. And I think that kind of came out in his relationships. We could talk about his life for a long time. But yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't the most personable, as, as opposed to Raphael, who really was.
0: Yes. Another thing that you told me about him that I was just thinking of when you were saying that was, of course, he was the man behind the dome on St. Peter's, which is one of the most dominant things if we're standing here on this porch. One of the most dominant things in Rome is that blue dome of St. Peter's, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's got to be the... Well, I mean, it's the tallest thing in Rome, and it's... Blue? well, Well, it's one of the most famous things The only thing maybe more famous would be the Colosseum, but you can't see that the way that you can see the dome from pretty much anywhere.
0: Yeah, and oftentimes when I am walking anywhere and I see the dome, I'm reminded of the story you told me, the dome being the last thing that he made, really, because he was old. He was old, into his 80s, and of course, they're talking with him about payment for doing this project, and he just says, no payment, this one's for God. Yep. And every time I see that dome, that's what I think of, is the no payment, this one's for God. I don't know, it makes it so, makes it sparkle more, just knowing that (laughs) there's something like that. It makes it stand out more, because you see the man behind the project. Uh Uh-huh. You know what else he did? He, on purpose,
1: designed the dome to be one meter narrower in diameter than the Pantheon. Because up until that point, the Pantheon built in, you know, the 2nd century AD was the widest unsupported stone dome in the world. And he did not want his dome to change that because he had that much respect for the ancient
0: architects. And that's the interesting thing about a city that's layer upon layer like this is that I can look at the Pantheon, I can see it right now. But Michelangelo also looked at the Pantheon and felt about it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And Raphael's buried in the Pantheon (laughs) and wanted to be there for a specific reason, whatever his reason was.
1: Now, it's unbelievable when you start to really see this city and spend a lot of time here and visit it. You start to see things pop up. For example, there's an amazing church. It's actually technically a mausoleum called the Mausoleum of Santa Costanza. And it has very early medieval... um, ceiling that's made of mosaics, and it has a very distinct design of crosses, hexagons, and octagons, fitting together like pieces of a puzzle. And I was visiting the church of San Carlino alle Quattro Fontane, St. Carl of the Four Fountains, and this is designed by Borromini, who was living in the 1600s. And the dome of this tiny, beautiful church has this exact same pattern of interlinking crosses, hexagons, and octagons. I mean, you, you have to think, did he go to this mausoleum that was built in the 4th or 5th century and see that and then design his after it? How did this happen? How did this come about? I mean, maybe it was, I, mean I have seen this other places, so it, it eventually did become a popular style, so maybe it was commonly used, but I've only seen it three or four places. When you see something that is old to you, but then even that was inspired by something even older... It really puts it in perspective, or reading the works of Goethe or Lord Byron or Keats who visited the city and wrote about it. It's a whole new dimension on it.
0: Yeah. It didn't make you think that you have no time. It made you think history is a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm too
0: cheerful. I don't know. I I don't... You know what it is. Here's what it is. Maybe this isn't what it is, but this is what I'm going to guess it is at this moment. Okay. <laughs> Okay. You, um... uh, There are two different places you could be buried in, in Rome, okay? I mean, there are a lot of places you could be buried, but... There were the catacombs, which are everywhere. Deep in the ground, layer upon layer, hole after hole in the wall, super claustrophobic, almost labyrinth-like, right? Mm -hmm. If you go down there... I, I took a tour of one of the catacombs, and the guide told me that while they used to let people wander on their own down here, now you had to go with a guide. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, a couple of people got lost and couldn't find their way out for oh, days. days. <laughs> that's terrifying. I know, which I thought, good grief, that's, that's horrifying. And thank God you're here. Great idea for a book though. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the opposite of that. So that's super claustrophobic. You're as far down in the earth as you can go. It's dark and stuffy and thousands of bodies. Okay. Then, there is the non-Catholic cemetery, which is another place in Rome that is this beautiful, almost garden-like area with statues and artistic works. That's where Shelley and Keats are buried, which is probably why I thought of it. There are stray cats everywhere lounging around. It's beautiful. There are cypress trees everywhere and flowers. Little mausoleums that are architecturally quite striking yes and this gorgeous statue of a crying angel that is probably the pinnacle of that entire place just for its sheer beauty and devastation two very different places but when i was thinking about both of those places growing up you know you always are taught well it doesn't matter where you're buried it doesn't matter if you're buried or cremated or thrown off a boat you don't care dead don't care where they are where they're buried is for the living it's what they could afford it's where they could go that sort of thing. And it's not that I began to care, it was more that I started to realize that it was very difficult for me to picture me being dead and somebody else having to decide, should I put her in this pretty place? Do I have enough money to (laughs) stick her in the catacombs? That's the hard part I think about dying in general, is and probably for all of these artists, half of what people do is them trying to make themselves immortal in some way, to contribute something that stays on this earth, the evidence that they were here. The likelihood that most of us will leave any evidence is pretty small and so it just gets to that point where you just can't picture you not being around you know and then rome somehow allows you more to picture you not being around because everything around you happened before you were around and there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that happens after you're not around anymore and that's where i go down the rabbit hole yeah
1: that is (laughs) That is frightening when you put it like that. There is proof that I, I have been here because there is a little bit of lipstick on a door. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, to tell, when well, sorry. I first moved here, I was living for about a month, not far from the Pantheon. and I think I was going out, and I was standing right by the door, big, huge stone doorway, putting on some lipstick. And I accidentally... Hit the door <laughs> As frame. you just hit the microphone. <laughs> Sorry. I accidentally hit the stone doorway with my lipstick, and it got a smear of lipstick on the doorway. This is 10 years ago, and that smear of lipstick is still on that doorway. I don't live anymore, obviously.
0: Yes, I walk by it, and every time I walk by it, I'm like, Oh, hi, Tiffany. <laughs> so that is proof that I've been here. Is it still the same shade, or has it faded over years? I think it's faded
1: a little bit. It's got a little bit dirty.
0: So do you think that 100 years from now that little piece of lipstick will still be there?
1: No, probably not because I'll probably clean that building at some point in history. But, maybe I can leave something else. Maybe I can leave a book. Yeah. Although most books, if you you really stop to think about it, probably the majority of books, even books that are published, even if you're lucky enough to get your book published, how many of those books actually survive a 50-year period? Even books that are successful, I mean, if you think about it now, I mean, I remember I've studied different writers and stuff and, and they'll say, you know, this writer was a contemporary of, let's say, Jane Austen, let's say, very, very successful in his lifetime but no one ever reads his work anymore, and it's all out of print. There's nothing left. Let's say even if I manage to get a book published, that doesn't mean that after 30 years when this writing style is no longer
0: popular that anyone's ever going to read this anymore. That's right. I mean, I was just in that used bookstore the other day, the one where we taped the smell episode. I was looking at the children's books, and there were was a book there that was called something very mundane, like Five Kids Going on an Adventure. <laughs> and it looked old and water-stained and dusty and you read the first line and you're like boy this sounds dull. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like how did this ever get published?
0: Yeah and that was only maybe a hundred years ago.
1: Or less. Or less. I know.
0: So it's so true. Not
1: everyone writes Pride and Prejudice.
0: Right. Particularly coming from a country America, which is so fame-oriented and interested in famous people, but also people trying to make a mark or be richer, or be more well-off so that they have their impact. Being in Rome makes you realize that your impact has got to be in the here and now, at least to me, with the people around you, because your impact, it one, it doesn't matter if you impact anything that's 200 years from now, <laughs> frankly, because you're not going to be around. So, Does Raphael still know that we're all Talking about him and the baker's daughter, well, that's a whole nother matter, but you gotta worry about the people who are going to read your book today, not necessarily will the book be here a hundred years from now, and will people be saying, that's where Tiffany lived when she first moved her and Here is her lipstick on the wall. <laughs> uh, you know, my egotistical mind can't imagine that though. I know, it's so hard, <laughs> isn't it? It's so hard. Yeah. And I mean, podcasting, good grief. No one's going to hear this again. Well, the funny thing is
1: that I think I read an article on this recently, and this is kind of going slightly on a tangent, but our generation, or let's say this time in history, these last maybe 10 years in history, 15, 20 years, is really the first time there's been so much documentation. I mean, the amount of documentation that every single person makes in their life even people who, let's say, eschew technology and who don't use Facebook and aren't on Twitter, even still, I mean, if you think about it, when you used to have to research someone, let's say let's say you wanted to research your family tree, finding a letter from someone, from one of your ancestors from 150 years ago is incredibly exciting because it gives you this little window into their world. But... For the people who are going to come 150 years after us, it's going to be overkill. I mean, there's going to be too much. It's going to be, oh, you know, my great, great, great grandmother, Tiffany, did a podcast. She had a blog. She was on Twitter. She wrote a bunch of books. She, oh, well, hopefully. Uh, she, you know, she wrote for magazine. These are all her articles. These are her letters that she wrote to her friends and your emails. Even, I mean, what kind of
0: documentation is every single person going to leave? Or they're not going to leave anything. It's just going to be so much, so much, so much that nothing is as valuable.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not going to be valuable at all. It's not going to be exciting to be like, oh my gosh, I just found great, great, great Grandma Katie's uh, letters to her husband when he was in the war. It's, oh, it's this like, girl whatever, <laughs> this is boring. Her intimate thoughts, you know, it's no one's going to care. Her Facebook up status is, you know, 20 Facebook statuses every day. I'm going to go to the market now. I mean, it's this excessive minutiae of the details of people's lives that, you know. And I also
0: think, woo, here comes that storm. I also think that it might be the difference between sitting down and writing a letter to somebody and mailing it. There's a certain thoughtfulness that goes into that versus the -the off-the-hip observation that is Twitter and Facebook. Holy moly, you wouldn't guess what I just saw. (laughs) Check it out, my new shoes. There's not a lot of thought. If I was to write a letter, I might say, and I got the most amazing new shoes. You would not believe I've been... I don't know what would drive me to talk about my shoes in a letter. I you wouldn't. probably wouldn't but even mention your shoes. That's You right. would
1: probably more likely talk about something deeper.
0: Yeah, something that was going on in your life. And so maybe that will be the difference also, that there's there's less... You substance. Know, substance behind Too it. Too many boring details. Too many boring details. Or, or maybe it will just be overload. If everything's in the cloud, what will really be saved as it, stuff increases year after year after year? More and more information goes out. Yeah,
1: it would be impossible to even research it because there
0: would be too much information to look through. Yeah. And then the really sad fact that people are not being taught cursive anymore. I know. And so they is won't that... even be able to read our letters anymore. Oh, that that opens a whole other window. I, they're not teaching cursive at all in school? They're starting to let it go. Learning to type is much more important now. It is. It is important. But, gosh, that's sad. There's going to have to be and there probably is already, historians who learn how to read certain types of writing. You've seen letters from maybe your grandmother's grandmother or somebody like that. You, you, can't, can't, even no, no. Even, you can't even read even, it. You
1: can't even Even less than that, even like my dad's like old letters
0: from when he was a kid, you know, back in the 50s. It's hard to read. So even we were getting more relaxed, and so it's more relaxed now. It'll be more relaxed then. It's possible that everything we write, they won't even be able to read anymore. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> ah, so... I'm not saying that Rome's bringing me down, I think it's very good to contemplate about these kinds of things, and I think that people should think about the fact that they're going to die and what they want to do with their life a little more often, so in that way I'm good, but sometimes when I get a little too dark my dad just says, okay, get out of the graveyard and get back to real life, All right. Yeah, I mean I I have to
1: admit that I like I said I don't think about death that often, but I do think about the shortness of my existence and the insignificance of my existence. Not necessarily as it as it pertains to my own imminent death, but <laughs> uh but uh, I definitely think Rome puts you in perspective and gives you a little bit of a wake-up call, a little reality check. My life
0: is really not that important. I believe as one of the characters in Little Women says i can get a misquote it. It's Amy when she goes abroad to travel and she says something like, Rome has humbled me. It's I think good. that's true.
1: You should leave it there.
0: Let's leave it there. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.